Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Like many people I interview on this podcast, my guest today, Gail Swift, has a mission that's been fueled by a painful experience earlier in her life. And for her, this happened at the age of 15. At that time, she was putting effort into being something that really she wasn't. She was working against the way that she was really designed to work. And for her, that caused a lot of unnecessary stress. Now, fortunately for the rest of us, Gail chose to use that pain to become a speaker and advocate for youth. She has an unwavering passion to teach every youth how they naturally solve problems, to discover their ideal way of doing things. So how is this useful? Well, this new awareness can guide college-bound students to know their ideal major. It helps parents better understand their children, building deeper and lasting relationships. And really, there is no greater joy than in finding your true essence, and that's what we want for our kids, right? So Gail is a certified Colby consultant and president of Plans to Prosper Coaching, and today, we're going to uncover how you can help your child find their ideal path in life. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here with you today. Fantastic. Well, I'm really curious to know a lot more about you, and I'd love to just start by um, having you introduce your, your family. Who, who have you got in the bunch? I do have my husband of 24 years, Dan Swift, and then I have a 16-year-old Noah Swift, and then my 14-year-old Tyler Swift, and my dog Jax, who's a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and she will be four this July. Awesome. So we're we're in similar stages of life. I've got teenage daughter who's 16 and twin boys who are 14, so slightly one one ahead of you there. But so you know, I'd love to dive into that that earlier time in, in your life, that painful experience that happened at, at age 15. What can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yes. I can. And it's amazing that it happened quite a while ago, but the feelings around that, of course, is very like it was yesterday. So it's easy for me to recall. I was not a popular kid in school. I was kind of the ugly duckling and I just didn't feel like I fit in. I think I had friends in maybe every group, but I didn't have one group necessarily that I could call my own. And I Grew up with Tourette's syndrome. I was diagnosed with the neurological disorder when I was five. And so I was put on halidol and dopamine from when I was five years old, which mm, I would say didn't help things at all. I had natural tics and I would not make a ton of noises, but I would sniff and move my shoulder and jerk my head. And all these things got me sent to the principal's office. I wasn't trying to make kids laugh, but they thought that I was. And so I got in trouble and I wasn't trying to be a troublemaker. But when I got older, 
it just was really tough because the natural way that I work that hadn't been identified yet, by the way, this, what I do now wasn't available when I was in high school, but it turns out I am a pretty random person naturally. And I'm pretty, I switch gears and I am a dreamer as people would say. And so my parents thought that I had a super hard time focusing. And that was always the, mm, I would say ilk of teachers. That was always the thing they put upon me. Gail's always all over the place. She's, you know, constantly dreaming. And so when I was 15, I was at a place, I was at a resort actually, and I was working and I wanted to be the cool kid. And so I literally tried to be someone I wasn't. I, I tried to find a cool kid that I knew and I tried to be like that kid because I wanted to fit in and I wanted to belong and it didn't work. As a matter of fact, it made things absolutely worse, it made things a lot worse. And a Friday night, we were in a ski show. I was on the bottom of the pyramid and there were three tiers to the pyramid and I fell. I was near the end and I fell not too far out into the lake. And that was like the catalyst that the frosting on the cake kind of that tipped the scales. And I went back up to the lodge where the people that worked there stayed and I overdosed. I took 60 Halidol pills. Yeah, I took 60 I counted them out. That's how I know how many I took. And when I was there, people have asked me, like, did you really want to leave? Did you really want to just go or was it a cry for help? Well, I wanted the pain to go away. I wanted the pain to go away. I was so confused and so just not confident and sure about who I was that I wanted it to end. When I got back to home, I actually woke up two days later. It was, it was a thing. The doctor said he was surprised I was alive because I took four times the lethal amount of medication. So I lost my privilege to take the medicine. That could be another podcast as to how I controlled my tics without medication. But what I realized a couple of years later was that it was normal how I was. Like what I was trying to suppress was kind of in me that I couldn't change. So that that is why I love and adore teenagers, because I know it's such a struggle to make sure that you're solid and to know that you have something in you that is gifted to you that can't move and is not going to change. And I spend my time and my life right now bringing that out and highlighting that. Wow. Well, first, just want to say thanks for, for sharing something that was you know, obviously a very challenging time in your life. So was standing out for me in what you're sharing is deep inside each each person there is a unique way of, of being and it was your struggle came about it sounds like in a lot of ways because you and others weren't able to recognize that right the way you were being was actually just fine there wasn't a need to find another path and so how did you go about discovering that that truth the overdose happened when i was 15 and I went into college on academic probation. I didn't even know I was going to get in. It was kind of a struggle. I'm surprised that I made it in, but I went in and I played tennis for this um, Division three college. And the first time I experienced freedom, the first time I experienced freedom was when I, I auditioned for a show, a play, a theater production, and I was shaking. I was just shaking so bad. Of course, I was in summer stock backstage when I was in seventh grade. So Naturally, of course, Jerry, I thought I would be great in theater in college. Like, <laughs> who does that, right? But I'm like, I'm going to audition for the show. It's going to be great. And obviously, it did not work out. But I love the theater. I love the stage. And that was the point. And so I found myself being drawn to writing and producing plays. I really, really love that. And 
Uh, then I found out what my class had to be for my business major, and it was calculus. Honestly, I switched majors based on that information. I People are going to spend more effort to avoid pain than go to pleasure. And so to avoid taking calc, I switched gears and I became a speech and theater major. And one of my first assignments when I was a junior, and I had to really ramp up the credits, I took three years of summer school to graduate in four years. But what I did is I... One of my assignments for my final was to write and produce a play. And I was in the library willingly, like willingly in the library. And I was researching all these playwrights and I wrote a play and I cast my friends and I picked people that I knew had the insights of the characters I wanted to bring out. And what I did was I asked questions of the people to bring out the character. And it was so easy for me to do that. And they did so well, and I got A's for the rest of my rest of my college career. And I thought, wow, is that me with freedom? Is that me actually choosing what I want? And I thought that was great. I got home from college, and my my dad, I said, Dad, I'm gonna be a stage manager. And he's like, Pumpkin, how are you gonna make any money in stage managing? You gotta be in sales. Um, that's where the money is. And I was like, I didn't have the knowledge yet, almost, to stick up for what I loved. I didn't know how to do that. So I thought, well, how can I combine stage managing and sales? And I thought of television, television advertising. The summer that I graduated, my parents still believed that I was a little off my rocker. And I was gifted for graduation a conative assessment. And that is... Conative is the part of the mind that is your doing part. So it measures how you take action. It's not your personality and it's not your cognitive, your IQ. It's how you solve problems. So it's three parts of the mind, thinking, feeling, and doing. And no one has ever measured that before because it wasn't around before. Apparently, this just came out in 1987. And so I took it in 1991 and my four numbers were five, four, seven, four. So that seven is where I initiated action. And that was a mode. It was green. It was called quick start. And it deals with risk and uncertainty. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And she said, that means you have an imagination. You're a fast thinker. You don't have to stick with one thing. You don't need to finish what you start. And I'm like, really? Like, that's okay. Like, that's a good thing. And she said, yes, it's a wonderful thing. It's a perfect thing about you. But can you imagine, Jerry, for like 18 years, you don't hear that this is a good thing. And then all of a sudden, I graduate from college. And now I know that it's a good thing to be this way. I, I just wanted to settle in that for felt like six months and wrap my wrap myself in that blanket of knowledge because for the first time ever, someone is telling me that it's okay to be creative and random and do things differently. What did that open up for you with that realization? It came with a list of jobs. It came with like 15 jobs that I would naturally be good at based on how I worked. And I still have that report. One of them was advertising. And the others, like I studied that list. And honestly, Jerry, my jobs were based on that list. Like, because if this thing was telling me that I was good at this, I'm trusting it and I'm going with it. And so I've done 
almost like half of the jobs that were listed. And my sense is these were things that you actually enjoyed, right? Like how, how did you find you were able to like perform and excel at what you did? I can tell you when I did not excel. I can tell you the environment at the time, of course, I'm in my early twenties. I'm a young adult. I'm trying to, I was in sales. I was in television sales. And some of my biggest complaint from my boss was that I wasn't consistent, which is what the conative person told me was good about me, but yet the world is telling me that's not good. So as a 22 year old, I did not have the language to articulate. This is what I need. I shoved my Colby report. That's what it's called. K-O-L-B-E. I shoved my Colby report in front of my boss and I said, help me. Like I'm in pain and I did not know. So I'm a huge advocate of teaching kids how to articulate their needs. If I knew how to articulate what I knew about myself, Jerry, I would have said, I work best with freedom. I know my budget is this. I Leave me alone and I'll get the job done. If I don't, I'll fire myself. So I know I'm best in that capacity and I didn't have the language. So I found myself when I had regular meetings or things to do all the time, I was drained and sucked dry. And honestly, to beef to help me, I stage managed on the side theater productions, which really helped. Yeah. So that was so that yeah, that one test was was quite a turning point career-wise. I'm curious too, on your website, you talk about how you're also really inspired and motivated to help parents better understand their their children. And I thought it'd be, it'd be interesting to just start by taking a look at your own family and, and what this awareness of doing has helped foster relationships with your kids and, and help them to be their best selves. Yeah, of course, I had a great family. I had a great childhood. And my parents, because I was young, it came with age. Talent was attached to age when I grew up. Was that the same with you too? Not, I'm not sure. I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Could you explain okay. That a little so bit more? basically me being allowed to do things, I got, you're not old enough a lot. You're not old enough. Like, and I recognize that what I do, what I see and how I work with kids now, it's not an age thing. Like they're gifted with things that I'm not gifted with. And so when I know that and I see that I let them do it. But anyway, how that shows up today for me and how that made it parenting so much easier Oh my gosh, my younger son would have been on medication if it weren't for knowing how he works, hands down, flat out, hands down. But my older son, when he was little, I remember we had a babysitter come over and I was Tyler, my younger one was in a carrier and my older one had crawled downstairs. And as I was explaining things to the babysitter, my younger son took apart and completely dismantled my husband's laptop. Wow. (laughs) What age was this? He, he was two and a half. And then to add insult to, I guess, a talent, this is all talent, right? And so. Didn't seem like, made it seem at the time. Right. Well, I was like, what the heck? But it was open. It was there. Of course, it's free reign to him. I've never seen a laptop in more pieces in less time in my life. So if you can imagine his room, people were like, oh, let's see. Let's see the room of your, you know, your firstborn. And it, it looked, Jerry, it looked like a cell because he took everything apart. He took the closet doors off. He took the vents off. He took his clock radio apart. Like literally it was a bed and a dresser. And I'm surprised he tried it and he didn't even have tools. So he's been like this. So when I recognize it as a parent, I lean into it. 
right? And so I lean in and I'm like, okay, he's a, he loves Legos. He loves doing it page by page. But when school started, he wanted to work on Legos before school. And I would say, hey, let's drop that and let's go. And he had a fit. Every single time he had an absolute fit, he had to finish the Legos. And I didn't understand that at the time because I don't need to finish what I start. Now I have a kid that does like, this is weird. Like, I don't understand this. I had to wait until they were in fourth grade to have them tested. And I work with three-year-olds now. Thank you. I'm so thankful for that. When he was in fourth grade, he was at a reading level that I could figure out how he worked. And it was like, ching, 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 ching. Everything just fell into place. Everything made sense. His work to minimize risk, he needs to start with a plan. So when we would run errands when he was little, I'd say, we're going to three places. And if we went across the street to a fourth place, he would freak out. So I said, okay, this kid needs a plan and I don't need a plan. So how do we work together as a parent and a child? How do I have an obedient kid, but yet this is an unchanging part of him. I can't, I can't change it. So how do I, I want him to be respectful. So we have like themes. I wanted a child that contributes to the world. I wanted him to have respect and integrity. So how can I do that with him being so different from me? And it was a lot, it was communication. It was, I need this and I need, so these are needs. So when he got older, this is how it showed up. I said, all right, Noah, come down for dinner. And he, he said, mom, I need five minutes to finish what I'm doing. Would that be okay? As opposed to him stomping down the stairs with an attitude because I made him stop what he was doing to come downstairs to be obedient. So it was a little, do you understand that? It was a little bit of give and take there. Yeah. So it starts for the first, it just starts, as you point out, with understanding what those needs are, having that awareness with each other. And then, as you say, using then the language to, for self-advocacy, right? And, and to try to find that, that balance. Yes. Oh my gosh. And that's such a good point. I, there's a self-efficacy test built into what I do. And when he was young and I wanted to put him in situations before I knew how he was, Jerry, before I knew his pattern of taking action, I put him in situations where he would always succeed. And I regret doing that as a parent because I started to see arrogance come through because he recognized or he thought that he was always good at whatever he embarked on. And when the magic happens, so if you can picture a balloon with all sorts of confetti in it, like colorful confetti, and the balloon is is big and it's a kid and it's floating to the ground. And as soon as it gets to the ground, parents are like this, like they want to catch it. But when it pops, which is the pain, you see what's inside. You see the magic and what's inside. And that's what I was preventing. I was catching the balloon before it went to the ground to pop. And I stopped doing that when he was about nine or 10 years old. And I started putting him in situations that were a little more challenging so he could see that he has gifts and everyone else has gifts they bring to the table. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful. So, you know, for parents listening out there then, out there, right? So they're, they're clearly seeing there's, there's some, some value in, in understanding for their kids, how they work and how they, they operate. I'd love to dive in a bit more than how Colby works and what's, what's the process for going through Colby and, and then applying those, that information. When I, Noah was in his room and when he took apart the computer and his room looked like a cell and things, 
So when I leaned into him, so I lean into that, like I just foster that in him and how that, whatever they're doing because they're born with this, Jerry. So what they're doing when they're little, how they solve problems and what they're naturally drawn to today, he's building PCs. Yeah, it, it just it just evolves. Yeah, right. It just it just evolves. And I'm not trying to make it any different. So his contribution in life, of course, will be some sort of you're seeing where this is going. You get it like it all evolves and it makes it makes sense. So I work with what's called a student aptitude quiz that students get when they have about a fourth grade reading level. It's a bag of toys if they don't. So if I work with autistic kids, if I work with special needs kids, young kids that can't read yet, there's a bag of toys and we can determine their cognitive makeup from those toys, how they do things. For the kids that can, it's called a student aptitude quiz. And in that quiz, it's identified what that child's MO is, meaning their pattern of taking action that will not change over time. They're going to die with it. They're born with it and they're gonna die with it. And it's not hereditary. The second thing in there is how they test and study well. About the SAQ, it's about 20, it's actually 30 questions and it's forced choice. So it's most likely and least likely, and it's all done online. It's a link. So it's most likely and least likely in every scenario for 30 times. So it identifies the MO, it identifies how that student tests well and studies well for them. And the last thing it tells that student is what causes them stress and what they can do about it. So I'm all about accountability. So my kids have grown up with natural consequences. They've grown up having the freedom to do things their way and deal with the consequences their way as well. But the other thing that comes with it is what's called an op gig, it stands for opportunity gig, assessment that measures or tells you their ideal career in life and an efficacy test. So the efficacy test is arrogant in the high end to very insecure and in the middle is humility, which is the sweet spot because we all would like lifelong learners or high confidence. So those two categories are where we want where we want the kids to be. That's the process. It takes about I would say 20 minutes, maybe maybe 30 for them to take both the SAQ and the op gig and then they get their results and I work with the families or I work with the kids depending on how old they are and explain this to him and them and help them understand how to verbally stand up for themselves, which is the component that I was missing. And I am a big advocate of having that young person say and respectfully request their need to be their best self. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, I'm even just thinking about my own kids who are very different. And I see a lot of times where I have my default way of thinking about things, right, and doing things. And as much as I try to give them freedom to to explore and, and do things, I mean, we lived a, we live a very non-traditional life. They've never been to a formal traditional school or anything, right? I'm very much about experimenting, but I default to certain ways of doing things like everyone else, as you're pointing out. And, you know, I can think about a lot of times where I've had friction that just comes from a difference of my expectations versus the way that they're trying to do things. So, yeah, consider me... Um, curious to to know that better for them and for me. So as you said, it's 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 something that that doesn't change. Is it possible that you could have multiple ways of, of doing things that someone can can choose from? And then also, I guess, a corollary that would be, you know, if it's maybe not your optimal way of, of doing things, but maybe there's a reason you want to go that certain direction. Is there a way to figure out how to overcome some of that limitation? Okay, 
So how you work, the only way that you would want to change it is if other people are telling you it's bad and you think that it could be or wish it was a different way. So for example, I have a son, another, my younger son, my 14 year old, most teachers, 70% of the teachers operate a certain way, according to this 12 grid chart that I, my son is the exact opposite of the teachers. So usually around third grade is when the lights go out in the eyes and they feel stupid, especially if they don't work the same way the teachers do. So how do I have this seven-year-old who comes home crying and recognizes that he's dumb because he doesn't sit there for seven hours a day or he doesn't read for hours on end and he's not dumb, but I know that he works differently. So the people around him are telling him that he works differently and it's not right. Okay. And you and I both know that's foolish, that this kid that works differently is brilliant. We both know that. So every teacher has had his way of working. And as a mom and knowing this and doing this, I'm ahead of him. And we go in together and say that you're going to be, what do you, what do you think, Tyler? Like, and so remember, personal responsibility is huge in our family. How can I create an environment? How can this child be responsible for creating an environment for him where he's going to be successful in a world where all hours are against him? And he is the fix-it guy. He's the go-to guy. He's the guy who two years ago actually set up a management system for someone to carry his backpack because it was too heavy. He interviewed three people and they had to have three people to carry his backpack and two people failed and the last one he hired. So, and he paid him in Jolly Ranchers. He changes clocks, he fixes chairs, he fixes desks. He has an ability to get up and move around. We've worked on language saying, I need to do this to be successful. I need to do this. And I am not a grade person. I don't care, honestly, what his grades are at all, because that's not an indication for me of intelligence whatsoever. What I was getting from what you're talking about, right, is like for your, your son, helping him equip in a, in a world where there's other standards that are being applied, right, and enabling him to, to still survive and thrive in a, in a world that's giving him messages that say he's not. That's right. Um, I actually just took high school off the table for him. I said, I'll homeschool you um, so you can work as an apprentice, as a cabinet maker and a welder, because that's what he loves to do. And I said, we'll, we'll do that. We'll have no problem with that. And he, he chose not to because he's a social kid. He chose not to, which is fine. He's working as an apprentice now. He's 14. I mean, he's done a lot of stuff because I know how he works. And I put him in situations where he's driven excavators, full-fledged Komatsu excavators successfully. He's tiled, he's roofed, he's, he's dug holes. He'll do, he'll do it all and he'll create. So he'll create with his hands. He's a physical guy. He loves welding, MIG TIG and stick welding. He loves it all. And he's done it ever since he was little. So another conative thing that happened, this is interesting for parents. If you guys have kids that are grabbing a chef's knife when they're like two years old, that means something. So that means something. So my son, Tyler was grabbing a chef's knife when he was really young over and over again. And again, instead of saying no, I'm like, well, if this kid's going to keep grabbing it, why don't I just teach him how to use it? So I did. And last year, he and my husband just entered a competition and one nailed it, a baking competition. So he, he cooks. He's a chef. When you lean into it, then obviously good things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just got to think, too, like just the confidence that gives him, right? With just 
the permission to try and experiment. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of failures along the way, but he's building that aptitude. He's doing stuff he, he loves. I mean, those kinds of messages are measurable. When he was in fourth grade and he came home and he wasn't bringing any homework home with those crazy sheets, those stupid sheets. And I'm like, hey, buddy, where are your sheets? Because and they were all over the place before. He's like, yeah, I decided I'm going to take the 10% ding. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, I asked my teacher, what would it cost if I didn't turn this in? And she said, 10% of your grade. He's like, it's worth it. Smart kid. Right? Wow. I mean, he's that's, making decisions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd like balancing the trade-offs. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we've covered um, a lot of really good, good ground. I mean, you, you talk about how it kind of can help you choose like a different job or, or career. I'm thinking too about just as so many now move into entrepreneurship. I mean, that's, that's the path I've been on for a long time. My son Graham is very much on that path. How would it help someone in that situation where maybe it's not a, a job per se, but but just helping them figure out, you know, how they want to serve in the world through their own entrepreneurial stuff? Colby does not measure if you can or can't do something. It measures if you will or will not do it naturally. So your can or can't deals with your motivation. And that is to be discovered. That's personal. That's that's you. How you do that motivated thing, that's Colby. So what you will, how you're going to do what you embark upon, that's Colby. When you get off the couch and make a decision to do something and you start taking action, that's Colby. And that pattern that you use to strive and decide, it's not going to be there if you're not trying. If you're just doing leisure and having fun and doing whatever, and that needs to happen too, you're not going to see your pattern of taking action. The pattern only shows up when you care about solving the thing. If you don't care, you're not going to see the pattern. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to, to, to wrap up. Any final words you'd like to share with parents who are listening right now? I would encourage if you have kids and you want to know how they work, Please check out the links that Jerry will put in the chat box or somewhere to get a hold of me or someone else that works with youth to figure out your kid's genius because it's important and it's not going anywhere. So what, where can people find you? I would say the best place. I love the phone. If you want to call, you can call. I'm on WhatsApp too. But I would say my email is the best. Gail at plans to prosper Awesome. And we'll put a, a link to your, your website there as well. There's some, some great information. And Gail, I just really want to thank you for, for the work that you're doing for so many people, for so many youth, for them to have an amazing start to know that the way that they are matters and is, is natural and is where they'll find their, their freedom. And to give parents the, the permission, perhaps in some ways, to let go of their own thinking and embrace who their kids want to be. So thanks for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Jerry.